The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they'd commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak any more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, we are thankful to you for gathering us as your people, for opening wide your sacred lips and speaking your word, the Bible, to us. And we now pray that you would speak to us breathe life into us that we may receive these words as from the Spirit who inspired them. And as we seek to live in a way which is faithful to Christ, in a culture which increasingly is opposed to him, we pray that you would give us Christ-likeness and wisdom and grace and courage and boldness to do so. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. From time to time, 
over the last couple of thousand years or so, faithful Christians have found themselves opposed by people in positions of religious or political authority. Opposed sometimes by religious authorities. Uh, It's sad to say that there are Christian denominations in our day which are drifting or sprinting fairly rapidly from Christian orthodoxy, including some formerly conservative Presbyterian denominations going woke faster than you can say implicit bias awareness training. Political opposition, the countries that Mr. Douglas prayed for during our prayers. Think of the scores of countries the world over where it's not safe to be a Christian. Uh, There are times when the persecution or the opposition takes the form of both at the same time. Uh, During the Reformation in Europe, that was certainly the case in the 16th and 17th centuries. And increasingly, although we don't want to exaggerate the issue, but increasingly it does seem to be the case today that we find ourselves in an era where there is official, so to speak, or structural or institutional hostility to the message that we proclaim and seek to live by. In this sense, there has been some significant change in the last few decades. If you think of um, Aaron Wren's analysis of uh, positive world, neutral world, negative world, so you may have read a quite well-known article now by Christian commentator Aaron Wren, back in the 50s and 60s and even as far up as the 90s, the early 90s, it was seen as a positive thing in public life to have some kind of fidelity to Christian teaching, but that's no longer the case. We now live in the negative world, as Aaron Wren puts it, where basic Christian convictions are viewed with contempt, where mainstream institutions that once were actually shaped by Christian teaching, educational institutions, it used to be possible to get Christian teaching in public schools, the media, uh, in public life generally, increasingly those institutions are at odds with the scriptures teaching and some denominations have drifted with the tide. And these are the first kind of political troublemakers to which the title of today's sermon makes reference. Biblical winsomeness in an age of political troublemakers. The first kind of political troublemakers are political or religious leaders who make trouble for people who are just trying to be faithful Christians. But there is another kind of political troublemaker. These are believers, Christians, who go looking for trouble. And you find examples in the Bible, famously James and John, though both of them were pretty transformed by the time the book of Acts comes around. But certainly in uh, Luke's companion volume, the Gospel of Luke, he records how James and John were walking with Jesus on the road uh, from the Samaritan villages. They perceived that Jesus was rejected in some of them. And they said, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? It's like, come on, Jesus. Let's have a bit of spiritual cage fighting, shall we? And Jesus turned and rebuked them and just went on to the next village. Seems that they both learned that lesson. In the modern world, I'm afraid this has been increasingly common. Uh, Christians spoiling for a fight, whether in the workplace or in personal relationships with family members or even on broader stages. Uh, We're all in uh, a world now where it's possible to publish your uh, instantaneous thoughts to the entire world. Wonderful. Wonderful. 
I can't think of a better invention than to allow every teenager and every angry young man to say whatever he wants instantly to six billion people. Fabulous. Uh, sometimes this happens in individual conversations, doesn't it? Um, it's Thanksgiving season, so we're all going back to our parents or grandparents or crazy dispensationalist Uncle Ted. <laughs> Come on. I mean, you just know the temptation. Uh, he's, he comes and you can sort of see the rapture charts poking out of the pocket inside his jacket. And you're, um, have you read any good books recently, Uncle Ted? And he's like, don't provoke him. You know what happened last time? Uh, we, we, people used to talk about cage-stage Calvinists. I think I want to talk about cage-stage post-mills and cage-stage pedobaptists. So there's a temptation for all of us, isn't there, to be so excited about things we're gripped by that we just have to talk about it. It's like, um, I can't remember whose definition of uh, what a fanatic it was, somebody who uh, won't change his mind and won't change the subject. Uh, on a larger scale, Christians in the public eye who should know better uh, and have apparently little better to do than to provoke controversy, sorry, controversy, um, wherever it can be stirred. You see, what's happening is people observe rightly that faithful Christians sometimes find themselves in trouble with the powers that be. Faithful Christians sometimes find themselves in trouble at work. Faithful Christians do sometimes find themselves in difficult conversations with relatives and friends and loved ones. Faithful Christians do sometimes find themselves in more public controversies. Faithful Christians sometimes find themselves arrested. But then they wrongly conclude that in order to be faithful, I need to be getting into trouble somewhere. Political troublemakers of the second kind. I've got to say, I mean, my opening thought about this, right, it's a good job that not every group in society operated like that. Can you imagine if firefighters operated like that? If firefighters went around setting fire to buildings so that they could show their faithfulness to their calling by trying to clear up the mess afterwards. Of course, firefighters sometimes have to tackle fires. We have a firefighter in the congregation, at least one that I'm aware of. It doesn't mean that you need to go burning homes down to drum up business. And you know what's a real pain in the neck? What's a real pain in the neck is when you've got both kinds of troublemakers at the same time. When there's lots of actual hostility to the gospel in major denominations. There are lots of large churches from which faithful Christians are fleeing in despair because they can't get clarity and truth from pastors who once, it seems, spoke it where there is actual hostility to the gospel in City Hall, where there's actual hostility to the gospel on Capitol Hill and in the public school system and in every other institution, when there's actual deep confusion among people whom we know and love, friends of ours, family members in the broader Christian world, churches that are compromised and loved ones who are being drawn this way and that by whatever crazy latest thing has captured the public imagination. And then you've got the sons of thunder who just won't keep quiet constantly kicking the hornet's nest, trying to inflame the situation further. Like, when you have actual house fires, you do not need Christians going around with flamethrowers. And that's exactly the situation you have in the first century. It's exactly the situation 
into which the book of Acts was written. Think about what's just happened. So we're in Acts chapter 4. This is not long after Pentecost, which is not long after the death and resurrection and ascension to heaven of Jesus Christ. That's Jesus who was crucified on a charge of sedition. The plaque above his head read, the king of the Jews, which inflamed everybody. It inflamed the Roman authorities because it was perceived as a threat by some to Roman political power. It inflamed the old covenant Israelite leadership because obviously the structures of authority upon which they relied were connected with the the temple in Jerusalem and the Torah and the sacrifices and everything that was predicated on the fact that the Messiah hadn't come yet. So if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the king of the Jews, then they're threatened as well if they want to cling to the authority they used to have. It's an interesting question. Is Jesus a threat to political and religious authority? Well, no. Not if that political and religious authority is ready to submit to him, but to anybody, anybody, in any position of authority, who is not willing to do so. Of course Jesus is a threat. Jesus is a threat to any unrepentant person. And so you've got political opposition and suspicion from the Roman world. They're always anxious. Pontius Pilate was terrified about you know, riots on his watch. The last thing he wants. You've got religious tensions and suspicion and compromise and hostility. And at grassroots, you've got all this confusion everywhere. Who is this Jesus character? Meanwhile, you've got no shortage of sons of thunder, spiritual descendants of the early James and John. Just kind of, we know about this actually, not just from the New Testament, but other first century uh, sources, that there were the kind of Christian version of the sicari, the, the dagger men, the zealots, who sought to establish the kingdom of Christ by force. Now, that's the situation you've got in 50, 60, approaching 70 AD in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East. And that's the situation into which the book of Acts is written. So one of the things that Luke is trying to do in the book of Acts is to explain how did this conflict get started. See, because it's important to clarify that it wasn't genuine, faithful Christians who started this stuff off. It may have been ungodly Christians who kicked the can or kicked the hornet's nest or inflamed the situation. But you see how this passage here arises in chapter 4? This is the first occurrence of hostility from the civil and religious authorities in the book of Acts after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. You remember chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple, they meet this man, they heal him, there's a massive crowd of people all kind of, what's going on? And they think that Peter and John are something special, and they say, no, it's not us, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the guy you crucified, he has been raised, and this sign testifies to his authority. So they're trying to calm things down, and then chapter 4, verse 1, you see what happens. As they were speaking to the people, Peter and John, maybe Peter's finished his sermon, and there's this crowd milling around, confused, and they're talking to the people. And the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Incidentally, there's probably two interwoven things here. There's a a charge of teaching the people. You shouldn't be doing that. Well, there's actually no rule against that. People taught in the temple all the time. Proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Proclaiming that the age of new life has begun, which, of course, particularly irritated the Sadducees. You didn't believe in resurrection at all. But 
From the community of the dead, one man has risen as the first fruits of the glory that await all who trust in him. That's what they're proclaiming. Verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000, which can't have done much for the blood pressure of the Sadducees and the elders and rulers of the people who really desperately wanted to make all this thing calm down. They now have 5,000 men, plus women and children, disciples of Christ in Jerusalem. What are they going to do? And so Acts explains, like, this, it wasn't us who started this. It wasn't, like, we weren't looking for a fight. We, we're just being faithful to Jesus. And other people who don't want anything to do with their Messiah were responsible for starting the, the inflaming the hostility and the tension that you now see around us. And crucially, in this passage, this first instance of, let's say, uh, tension or hostility or antagonism between the, the faithful people of God and political and religious authorities, this is written to show us some important aspects of how we should respond to it. It commends what I want to call biblical winsomeness. Now, I use that phrase advisedly. It is really something when the term winsomeness has become in Christian circles a mark of compromise, as though somehow to be winsome, to, to seek to be gracious and persuasive and to uh, seek to commend with charity the grace of Christ, where that has become a term which is used as a term of abuse. We've really come to something, and I think it's about time we re rediscovered biblical winsomeness. And I want to show you what it is. In fact, rather, I want to let Peter and John show all of us what it is. There are two strands to this. I want to, the first one will take much longer than the second, and it will occupy us all the way down to verse 13. And the first strand of biblical winsomeness is that they continued to declare the sins of everybody, the people and their leaders. Biblical winsomeness does not mean soft-peddling the truth just because you want to curry favour, with people who you might be able to get something back from at some point in the future. Biblical winsomeness does not mean compromise in order to avoid conflict. Biblical winsomeness is ready to call a spade a spade. Look with me at verse 5. On the next day, so they've been in prison overnight. Just think about that for a second. Come back to that in a minute. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, quite a gang of people, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, which is... <laughs> yeah, so what he says next is going to be very significant, isn't it? Said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Really? Is that, is that what you're upset about? Let it be known that it's not us. How easy it would have been to claim the credit at that point, by the way. To make more of yourself than of Jesus. To start encouraging people to follow your example 
rather than ultimately the example of Christ. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and here's where the, the crunch comes. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, so you're standing against God's purposes now, this By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. In other words, you really should have known better, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Now look what's happening here. Peter is highlighting the sin of the most powerful religious political leaders of the people of Israel in two ways. First... He says, and not for the first time, whom you crucified. Jesus was arrested, you know, as in the Gospels, as, um, at the instigation of the uh, Jewish priestly and uh, religious authorities. And the Israelite leaders stirred up the crowd and colluded with Herod and Pontius Pilate to have him crucified. But then they add to that, they quote from Psalm 118, look in verse 11. This Jesus is... Psalm 118.22, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Now, this is a, a, a fairly long and wonderful, slightly complex psalm, but it, it sets before us the image of the Lord building a new, new temple. And Jesus is the, f- the most important stone. Scholars and ar- archaeologists and architects debate whether, which, where it was in the building, but it's the most important stone. He's the most important thing in this building, and we're all, of course, First Peter, living stones being built together into him. And his, his, call, his desire is to gather in the nations, which is what Psalm 117 is about. And you guys are the builders. You're the old covenant people of Israel, the leaders of the people of God, and you rejected him. This repeats a theme from uh, the book of Acts, this, this issue of whom you crucified. You noticed it, didn't you? In chapter 2, the conclusion of Peter's Pentecost sermon, verse 36 Therefore let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's like, talk about rub it in. And then again in chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, he's teaching the crowd outside the temple. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and handed over to Pontius Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. He won't leave it alone. Actually, chapter 5, verse 28, the Jewish leadership, they'd like had enough of this. It's like, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter's like, well, yes. Verse 30. Now, just a note here. um, It is um, uh, regrettable, to put it mildly, that texts like this are used to justify anti-Semitic attitudes. Uh, There's quite a lot I'd like to say about that, but um, let me just say at this point, um, please can we be clear about what the Bible teaches? The Bible does not teach that the leadership of the people of Israel and the people of Israel themselves were so much worse than everybody else. What the Bible teaches is the problem was they're exactly the same as everybody else. It's what uh, the text says in chapter 4, verse 27. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples, plural, of Israel. See, the, the issue is not um, that the old covenant Israelite leadership or the old covenant people of God were so much more evil than everybody else. That's just not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is they're no different. And in fact, that's the situation viewed from a slightly different perspective that, that exists today. The, the, the era of old covenant Israel's distinctive role in the world as the heralds of the coming Messiah has ended with the downfall of their temple and now everyone is on the same low level playing field that we are on by nature. All desperate blind sinners trying to find food and our job is to tell others where we found it. I have about four seconds patience with uh, anti-Semitic attitudes just as any other kind of racist attitudes which cannot in any way be justified by scripture. Back to where we were in chapter 4. Notice the first element of biblical winsomeness. You've got to tell the truth. Like you don't actually win people, win some, by lying to them. This is something that people discover sometimes in pastoral contexts. Um, they discover that at faithful churches, pastors and their friends will not just gloss over their sins. You get as much grace as you have sin to confess. And no more. Any sin that you don't want forgiven for, that's fine. Just don't confess it to Jesus. Don't acknowledge it. Proclaim yourself to be a victim. Pretend it wasn't really you. But there is always grace. Always grace. For sins that are confessed and acknowledged and owned and repented of. Which is why... Peter, who so wants his brothers, his Israelite brothers, to know the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't want to, well, you're really so important, I couldn't possibly tell you that you were in any way responsible for participating in and colluding in the crucifixion of the Messiah. No, he's going to say what actually happened, because he loves them. Now, when we look at some other details, and we're going to look on in that same little section again, I want to highlight some other elements of biblical winsomeness that will serve to, I hope, will serve to help us to work out what to do in those Thanksgiving conversations. Help you to work out what to do at work or in other relationships. Um, It might, I hope, it will give us a degree of discernment in evaluating things that we might hear in the world out there so that we can discern whether they are really Christ-like. What's it say in the covenant pledges that our new members um, pledged a few minutes ago? Um, The pursuit of holiness in all things and peace with all men. That is a thought. Let's look in this text a bit closer and see what we find. Notice first, they didn't go looking for trouble. It's kind of obvious when you think about it, but um, if you go back as far as chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, to see what kind of a ruckus they could kick up. No. They were going to the temple at the hour of prayer because that's the hour of prayer. That's when you go to the temple. They're just doing what they've been doing for the whole of their lives. And now they're going to pray to the Lord who has raised Jesus from the dead in the temple that still stands and therefore can be used for that purpose. It was just the time when everybody went to prayer. And they happened upon this guy, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, who's... Um, lame, been lame for 40 years, uh, and they heal him. 
Notice that they're doing good. <gasps> Gasp. <laughs> like we, you know, the, the guy you're a bit embarrassed about, that you sort of step over all the time, we went out of our way. And look, look at us. Don't look at the beautiful gate of the temple. It's about to be torn down in a few decades' time. Look at us. If, you, if what you want is Jesus, I can, I can, we can give you Jesus. It's actually what Peter starts saying at the beginning of his defense. Very brief speech, isn't it? Verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, can we just get that clear? That, like, we, we just solved somebody's lifelong problem. By the name of Jesus, he was healed. Peter's sermon, it will be easy to misunderstand this, you know, it will be easy to make it sound like he went out trying to stir up a crowd. It's not. What happened was, they just healed the guy, the crowd came to them. It's not premeditated. It's not like a planned presentation. What happened is that the crowd is coming. Look, verse 11. All the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, Solomon's astounded. And Peter sees this crowd, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people coming to him. He's like, okay, guys, just, just calm down. All right, men of Israel, let, let's just explain what happened. And then he doesn't hide from them their sin, but at the same time, it's not trying to stir them up to some kind of rebellion. He wants them to repent of their sin just like everybody else's. This is not an artificially manufactured occasion. It's not staged. It's not set up to provoke. Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness. He did not say, blessed are you when you are persecuted because you are objectionable or because you're always inciting hostility, or because you get on Uncle Jim's case again at Thanksgiving. Sorry, if anybody's got an Uncle Jim who's a dispensationalist, I'm really sorry. I'm not not talking about him. You're not blessed when you just won't shut up about your new paid Baptist convictions. I thank God for your new paid Baptist convictions. You, You will not persuade your friends who still go to the Baptist church that you used to go to by being obnoxious. And I know you realize that. It's just worth letting it sink in and think, okay, so how how would I seek to be in such a way that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Maybe if we were the most loving Christians anybody knew, we'd suddenly find that our friends were persuaded because they might think we'd found something. In fact, what they're doing is they're just continuing the ministry of Jesus himself. You'll be aware that um, the book of Acts and the book of Luke are parallel in two distinct ways. There's a panel structure where Acts 1 and Luke 1 kind of go through together like this, and so there are corresponding elements. So this healing of the lame man in Acts 3 is parallel with Jesus' healing of the paralyzed man in Luke 5. They're also chiastically parallel, so they come, yeah, don't don't laugh. Everything's a chiasm, obviously. Obviously, everything's a chiasm, even that last, yeah, there we are. But catch up, you'll get there. But this trial mirrors the trial of Jesus. And that's not just, I mean, it is a beautiful literary device. It's teaching in the temple, chapter 4, verse 1, captain, same word used to describe the uh, people who uh, uh, approached Jesus in Gethsemane. They laid hands on the apostles, just like they laid hands on Jesus, is what the text says in 4.3. The trial took place the next day. It's actually the same court. It's all the same people are there. 
Chapter 4, verse 5, rulers were gathered together, same terms. The accusation is very similar, chapter 4, verse 7, to the accusation against Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority? See, twofold accusation, just like in 4, 7. By what power? Authority. Name, who gave you the authority. And then, of course, the same psalm is quoted, Psalm 118, that Jesus quotes. Now, what's the point of that? The point is to say... Peter and John are doing what Jesus did. Peter and John are continuing a Christ-like ministry of the proclamation of the grace of God to a lost and helpless and sinful and needy and proud world. And you commend grace by being grace-filled. You commend the love of Christ by being filled with love for others. This conflict has arisen because they're just being like Jesus. And you know, you, some of you went through that stage in your earlier Christian life. We had those little wristbands that said, what would Jesus do? And now you're a little bit embarrassed because it's like Christian bling of the worst kind, aren't you? Um, and I think you would, we would all do well to find a some less Christian blingy way of remembering what would Jesus do? I don't really want to see too many of those wristbands around, okay? But <laughs> you can if you like. You won't offend me. But we will offend Jesus if we don't do what he did. And then notice, I mean, that's a f- they're not looking for trouble. Another feature of this which highlights their Christ-likeness, they're remarkably gracious, Just look at verse 8 and just think about what's happened here. Verse 8. Rulers of the people and elders. Now, that's a very significant thing to say. It acknowledges the authority of this assembly. It acknowledges the formal office of the men who stand before them, or before whom they stand. It acknowledges the process that they've been subjected to. And let's be clear, the process was not exactly friendly. They were arrested without charge, imprisoned overnight, arraigned before the whole Sanhedrin and a whole bunch of hangers-on. The way the Sanhedrin used to do this, by the way, is that they would arrange themselves in a semicircle. We know this from Josephus. And they arranged themselves in a... We partly know it from Josephus, partly from this. I'll show you why in a second. Um, A semicircle. They're all seated, and they'd make you stand at, like, the centre of the semicircle so they could look at you from all angles. And you'd be standing there. Oops. Just... Don't worry about that. It won't set fire to anything. Very good. Um, And it says here, verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, and they've got the whole Sanhedrin here, plus a whole bunch of other people, the scribes, the rulers, the elders, Annas, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and everybody else from the high priestly family is about the most intimidating setup you could possibly imagine. He'd been in prison overnight, not sleeping, no charge, And then they say, right, by what power and by what name did you do this? And the first thing you do is acknowledge the legitimacy of the court and the God-given status of the men who are unjustly accusing you and the honour to which they are nonetheless due on account of their divine appointment. If God appointed Caesar, Romans 13... He certainly appointed these men. And the goal of all of this, 
And this is perhaps the most important um, thing to have in mind if you really want to capture what biblical winsomeness is all about. The goal is that as many as possible would be saved, including these priests and officials and rulers and elders. And you can see that in verse 12. How often we misread this, by the way. What it says, we sometimes misread this as though it's a kind of poke in the eye. There's salvation in no one else. No, it's like, brothers, there's salvation in no one else. There's no, where else are you going to go? There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And you know what happens? What's most wonderful about this? You turn forward two chapters to chapter 6, verse 7, and you get one of Luke's periodic statements about the progress of the gospel. And look what he says. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, <laughs> and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I submit to you that fewer priests would have been saved if they had been torched in public. Biblical winsomeness then is not acting so that your critics think you're nice, but it is uncompromisingly speaking the truth, not seeking a fight, bringing the truth of the grace of Christ to people who need it, seeking their salvation. It's not preaching to the choir. It's not trying to create a ditch that you can die in in front of all your friends so they all applaud your faithfulness. I don't want to hear about Thanksgiving dinners where you really took it to them. Please. I want to hear about Thanksgiving dinners where they see a new side of us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the church were known for that? The, the church were known for being falsely accused when they're actually doing good and being restrained and gracious and composed and irenic and seeking above all things the salvation of precisely the people who are accusing us, which is exactly what Jesus did. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Very briefly then, I want to just look a couple of elements in the second part of this passage, then we're done. Notice how Peter and John insisted that they will continue to do this. We will continue to proclaim resurrection life to the people. Really, the way you notice it, I mean, it's obvious from verses 19 and 20, but notice the contrasting motives of the Sanhedrin, the council, and all the elders. Verse 13 they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they're just ordinary people and they're astonished and they realized they'd been with Jesus. Huh. This is another one of Luke's little throwaway comments with so much buried there. These ordinary men in whom wisdom and grace were seen and we realized they had been with Jesus. Maybe that's when some of the priests started the journey that would end them in chapter 6, verse 7. Anyway, Seeing the man who'd been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, you can't really handle, you can't really argue with healed legs. You know, the guy's been paralyzed 40 years or lame 40 years, and now he can walk. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what should we do with these men? 
We can't deny that the sign has been performed, but we don't want it to spread. The last thing we'd want is other people to hear about Jesus and how he's like the resurrection and the life and stuff. Perish the thought that we should abandon our flaky theology that says there's no resurrection, Sadducees. So they contrive something, just try and intimidate them. Threaten them, warn them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, verse 17 and 18. But Peter and John answered them, guys, like, <laughs> we'll leave you to figure out whether we should obey you or whether we should obey God, but we're just going to speak about what we've seen and heard. It's about the most concise, calm, understated way of saying, we've just... We're under obligation, as Paul would later say, to the gospel of Christ. What, what are you supposed to do? Guys, we, we can see the same thing you've seen. We have to give an account of this. We don't want people to think that we're miracle workers and super-duper healers. We want people to know about Jesus. And we're going to continue to proclaim the life that is found in his name. It's wonderful and obviously startling in verse 22. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I mean, just think of a personal experience that he's had for four decades. Of course, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness are now over for this man. And it's a wonderful little closing remark that highlights what is available. You know, you've wandered in the wilderness, ladies and gentlemen, for so long. And Jesus invites you to enter the land of promise with him, with this man and with all who trust in him. Biblical winsomeness then, uncompromising about the truth, not looking for trouble, not inflammatory, understated rather than overstated, gracious and thoughtful and wanting above all else to actually persuade rather than preaching to the choir or just trying to start a fight. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we ask that you would show your grace and your power through us, even us, we who are both weak and sinful and who long in our better moments for nothing more than to become more like Christ our Saviour. We pray that you would have mercy on the world around us, even this world which is hostile to Christ, just as the world that he encountered in the flesh was hostile to him that many may be saved. And we pray in his name. Amen.